Heavenly Father, may our cry come before you, O Lord, through Jesus Christ. And may you send the Holy Spirit to us now and give us understanding according to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Micah. We began it last week with Micah chapter 1, where we looked at how Micah is a prophet who speaks very clearly of the judgment of God in quite figurative language, uh, as uh, the fact that even the mountains melt before the wrath of God as he comes from his dwelling place. And this morning we see that Micah continues to speak of the judgment of God. Who is he speaking against particularly in chapter 2? Well, it's against thieves, against those who steal from their neighbours. We see that in verse 1 and 2. It says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. They're stealing land from one another. And even over in verse 8, we see that they're taking clothes from people. Uh, verse 8, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. And then in verse 9, You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Again, another mention of stealing of land. And what's the penalty for stealing? Well, it is that your possessions will be taken from you. If you steal from others... God will take from you. And we see that in verse 4. It says, In that day men will ridicule you, they will taunt you with this mournful song, they're mocking in the way that they speak here. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Our fields are taken away. Our lot, our, the land that has been allotted to us has been removed. And in verse 10, Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. God is going to send them out of the land, that it is not their resting place because of their sin. And what is the people's response to Micah as he comes and speaks so clearly of their sin and of the judgment of God and the penalty that God will pay them for their sin? Well, we see that they respond by saying, don't prophesy these things. Verse 6, do not prophesy, their prophets say, do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Their response to Micah and to other prophets who is telling them very clearly about the judgment of God and their sin is to say, don't prophesy. Don't preach to us about these things, about the disgrace that we deserve for our sin. The way of dealing with the problem is to say, don't prophesy or don't preach. It's actually quite a figurative uh, verb that's used here in the Hebrew. It's a word that's used for dripping. Uh, so when a liquid drips like honey or rain from the clouds. And so what they're talking about is really don't preach. And some translations even say that rather than prophesy here. Don't preach because you think of a preacher and he gets worked up and what starts to happen? The, the spit starts to come out as he's really excited by what he's saying or is really angry, the spit starts to fly. So don't drip at us. They're being very derogative towards God's prophets. And Micah is derogative back when he says, they drip at me, don't drip. That's their response to God's prophet. Don't drip at me. And so Micah says that they would prefer a different type of prophet. It's not that they don't like prophets. They like prophets but prophets who tell them what they want to hear. And what is it they would like to hear? 
Not sin, not about sin, not about judgment, but about prosperity. And we see that in verse 11. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for these people. They like prophets. Prophets who say, you're going to have plenty of wine. You're going to have plenty of beer. You're going to live a prosperous life. That is the kind of prophet that these people want. They don't want a prophet who speaks of disgrace. They want a prophet who speaks of prosperity. And this passage then, we can see, applies so easily to us today as well. It's still today that people steal, isn't it? We still steal from one another. We take possessions, we take land from one another. One of the ways you think, oh, well, I don't actually steal, Uh, I can't be convicted of any crime, but one of the great ways that we can steal from others is by laziness, by not doing what we should do, and particularly with our employers. We steal from them all the time when we do not do what we've been paid to do. And so we take from others what is not ours to take. I think this is one of the things that Australians particularly struggle with, is the laziness, this attitude towards work. And so we take from others. But of course we can do it in all kinds of other ways, we're cheating on taxes. And may even actually be that you have committed crimes where you have taken what does not belong to you. And the penalty still applies today as well. The penalty still applies. God has told us in his word that he will take all our possessions from us ultimately and judge us, either when we die or when Christ returns. And we will suffer eternal disgrace for our sin. So the Israelites were saying, do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Yes, disgrace will overtake us because of our sins. And it will overtake us and we will have to endure it for all eternity because of our sin. And it is still today that liars and deceivers will come along and be prophets for those who say, don't preach these things. We see people today still say, don't preach sin and judgment. I don't want to hear it. What I want to hear is, I will have plenty of wine and plenty of beer. I will have a mansion. I will have luxury clothes. I will have nice watches. I don't know why anyone wants a watch anymore. I just look at my phone. But maybe they say, you'll have nice phones. You'll have luxury cars. You may even have a yacht or a jet. That's what people want to hear from preachers today, isn't it? And there's plenty of liars and deceivers today, just as there were in the days of Israel, who'd rise to the occasion and tell you what you want to hear. We know them as prosperity preachers. They do not mention sin. They do not mention judgment. It's all prosperity, prosperity, prosperity. This text still applies today so easily. We can see it. And it's absolute foolishness. Why is it foolishness? Well, it's like picking a doctor who only ever tells you positive things, and that's why you like him. He only ever tells you that you're going to live forever, that you've got no medical problems, you're fighting fit, your blood work is all clear. That's all he tells his patients. It's absolute foolishness to pick a doctor because he only speaks positively. Because what's he doing? He's denying reality. It's the mark of a false doctor that only speaks positively and never warns of danger. And so, just like it's a mark of a false doctor, it's a mark of a false prophet. If he only ever speaks of prosperity and never warns of danger. 
And so what's your response to this today? Do you not like me or other preachers preaching sin and judgment? Why is that? Is it because you've never repented of your sins? You're like the Israelites long ago who didn't want to repent of their sins, who didn't want to change. And so, of course, you don't like preaching about sin and about the judgment of God for sin. If that is you, hear the words of Micah and repent now before you lose everything. One day all your possessions will be taken away from you. All that you've worked so hard, all that you've stolen from others, it will be stripped from you. And you will be overtaken with eternal disgrace in hell. Come to God and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Trust that he has taken the penalty that you deserve for all your sin. That he was disgraced for you many years ago at the cross so that you will not be disgraced for all eternity. Some of you may be saying, oh yes, but that's not me. I don't mind preaching about sin and judgment and I have repented of my sins and I've trusted in Jesus Christ so Micah doesn't have much to say to me here. But are we at Dremoyne, ones who do not resist the preaching of judgment of God against sin? Is it possible that we face this temptation too, that we see in verse 6, do not prophesy, their prophets say, do not prophesy about these things, disgrace will not overtake us. It's always possible, I think, that we can tell good preachers do not prophesy about these things. We like preaching, but sometimes we don't like preaching about the essential matters of the Christian faith. Why, why do we struggle? Why might we struggle with this sin that we see here in Micah chapter 2 of the Israelites so many years ago? Well, part of the reason, I think, is because we are instructed in the Scriptures to reject false teachers, just as I've told you now. We're meant to reject prosperity preachers who only speak of the prosperity of God and do not speak of sin and judgment. So we are meant to have our, our, our eyes and our ears alert to heresy that may come along. But it's so easy to always be sermon critics rather than sermon consumers. It's so easy to always be critical of sermons rather than allow the sermon to come to us. We much prefer to come and judge God's spokesman on a Sunday morning rather than be judged by God's spokesman. Isn't that true? We'd much rather come in and judge the man up the front than be judged by the man as he speaks God's word. This is part of the reason I find it difficult to give sermon feedback. I have young preachers that will say, oh, can you give me some sermon feedback? And it's really difficult because if he is God's spokesman and people have been praying that God would speak through him, how am I supposed to critique him? It's very difficult. I, have to, I can, of course, give some feedback about, I think this would be better, you could structure this a bit differently, but I always try to include, whenever I give sermon feedback, something that touched me. As I'm listening, I'm trying to sit under the word, even as I've been asked to sit over the word of someone who is preaching. But it's easy for us to fall into that habit of always being over the word rather than being under the word. And so it's easy for us to then critique a good preacher. 
if we are always in that habit. And another reason why this could be a temptation for us to do what they were doing in verse 6 there is because we consider even the very best of men can rebuke wrongly. Just think of the Apostle Peter. He declares to Jesus that you are the Christ. Then Christ starts to speak of his death. And what does Peter do? Good Peter, who just declared that Jesus is the Christ, he proceeds to take the Christ, who he's just affirmed as the Christ, and rebuke him for his preaching, his prophesying about what will happen. If Peter can do that, can't the very best of men rebuke a good preacher wrongly? Isn't there always a possibility that we will succumb to such a temptation? Another reason why we could be in danger of doing what they do in verse 6 is, of course, because we love our hobby horses, our pet doctrines. And we'd much rather those be preached than the essentials. Paul warned, we saw that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he warned Timothy that people would look for preachers who scratch their itching ears. That people would come along and look for preachers that scratch their itching ears. The mentality can sometimes be, we want a jukebox from our preacher. I pay, I get to pick the tune. And we can take that attitude to our preachers. I want this song played rather than that song. I don't care about the rest of the room. I want my favourite song being played. And that's what we can have when it comes to preachers of God's word. We can say, I want my favourite doctrines preached, regardless of what is best for the whole of the room. And this goes for me too. There's a part of me that loves to focus on non-essential doctrines. I love reading very widely. I read all kinds of books. And I could bring that material to you on Sunday mornings. And I could show my excitement about some of the things that I've read through the week. And it would be very enjoyable for me. But would people as a whole here that are gathered in God's name enjoy the preaching of the non-essentials more than the old, old story of Jesus and his love? Would it be right for me to do that, to come in and preach on Sunday mornings, non-essential matters, on a regular basis, rather than the old, old story of Jesus and his love? And why else is there also a temptation for us to do what is there in verse 6? Well, I see it in my own self. Not just with wanting to preach the non-essentials, but from wanting to preach at all. From wanting to preach at all. Part of me wants to stop preaching God's judgment and about sin because of my own failings. I'm going to give you a little window this morning into the soul of a preacher. And one of the ways I'm going to do it is by quoting from another preacher, one of my favourite preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Never heard him preach. I've read many of his sermons. And he says about ministers, about preachers of God's word, in one of his sermons, he says... A minister is very conscious of his own imperfections. I think no man will ever form a more just opinion of himself than he who is called constantly and incessantly to preach. Some man once thought he could preach, and on being allowed to enter the pulpit, he found his words did not come quite so freely as he expected. And in the utmost trepidation and fear, he leaned over the front of the pulpit and said, My friends, if you would come up here, it would take the conceit 
out of you all. Spurgeon continues, I verily believe it would take the conceit out of a great many, could they once try themselves whether they could preach. It would take their critical conceit out of them and make them think that, after all, it was not such easy work. He who preaches best feels that he preaches worst. He who has set up some lofty model in his own mind of what eloquence should be and what earnest appeal ought to be will know how much he falls below it. See that? The preacher who preaches best feels worse. There's a part of a preacher that doesn't want to preach because he's conscious of his own failings. And then he continues. He says, He, best of all, can reprove himself when he knows his own deficiency. I do not believe when a man does a thing well that therefore he will glory in it. On the other hand, I think that he will be the best judge of his own imperfections and will see them most clearly. He knows what he ought to be. Other men do not. They stare and gaze and think it is wonderful. His preaching is wonderful. When he thinks it is wonderfully absurd and retires wondering what he, that he has not done better. Every true minister will feel that he is deficient. He will compare himself with such men as Whitfield, with such preachers as the Puritans, and he will say, what am I? Like a dwarf beside a giant, an anthill by the side of the mountain. When he retires to rest on Sabbath night, he will toss from side to side on his bed because he feels that he has missed the mark, that he has not had that earnestness, that solemnity, that death-like intenseness of purpose which became his position. He will accuse himself of not having dwelt enough on this point or for having shunned the other or not having been explicit enough on some certain subject or expanded another too much. He will see his own faults for God always chastises his own children at night time when they have done something wrong. We need not others to reprove us. Speaking as preachers, we do not need others to reprove us. God himself takes us in hand. The most highly honoured before God will often feel himself dishonoured in his own esteem. And it's so true for preachers of God's word. They know their own failings. And there's a temptation to say, do not prophesy about these things. It's true. Sunday evenings can be the worst times for me. And the whole of Monday can be written off. You don't believe me? Ask my poor wife. I received a call to preach. My wife, I'm not sure she received any sort of call, let alone a call to put up with a groaning husband on Mondays on what is her day off as well. It's true. We all need to watch out for the temptation to do what the Israelites did in verse 6, including preachers themselves, including myself, to say, do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So what do we need to do then to make sure that we don't fall temptation, and we don't fall into this temptation, when we don't sin in this way? Well, first of all, what should preachers do? What should preachers do? If even the very best of men can say, don't preach these things... If members of the church who are faithful and godly men can say, don't preach these things, like Peter did, or even the minister himself can say, don't preach these things or don't preach at all. What has stopped me from resigning years ago, from handing in my letter of resignation at Dremoyne Baptist? What has kept me from doing what verse 6 
says that the Israelites were doing years ago? Is it by embracing positive feedback from you, encouraging you to give me more and more positive feedback about my sermons, so therefore I will keep on preaching these things? I'll keep on dripping these things. I can see the saliva sometimes coming, so it's best not to sit in the front row. What has kept me for years from handing in my resignation? Is it getting more positive feedback? I must admit, you here at Des Moines Baptist are very kind to me. You give me encouragement regularly about how God has used my failing efforts to edify you, to be a benefit to you, as I've preached about these things that others don't want me to preach about and even my own heart doesn't want me to preach about. But sadly, I'll let you in on a preacher's soul again this morning. Your positive voices do not drown out the negative voices. I'm sorry to say it, they don't. They don't drown out the negative voices, including my own voice that says, don't prophesy these things. So what keeps me going? And what will keep me going to keep on prophesying despite the resistance from people and my own heart? Well, Micah tells us. Micah tells us what will keep us going. He tells us that the message is too important. He tells us what the message is and how important it is. We see, what is the message? Well, even the Israelites say it. Verse 6, do not prophesy about these things disgrace will not overtake us. He had been preaching about the disgrace that they will receive. And this is an important message to keep on preaching. Unbelievers are going to lose everything and suffer eternally in hell. The preacher knows this, and so he can't help but preach it. That's what motivates him to keep going, despite people saying, do not prophesy these things. Preach something else. Preach something more positive. Preach at my hobby horse, my pet doctrines. He keeps on preaching. Why? Because he knows that the essential message is essential. That people are going to spend eternity in hell, so he keeps on going. And Spurgeon encourages preachers in the same way in that same sermon that I just read a large quote from. I've got another large quote because he speaks about how the preacher suffers and doesn't want to preach and feels the pain of preaching. And so what does he say? He gives a couple of reasons why the preacher should continue. And the one that I've just outlined is here in his sermon as well. He says, Ministers feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel. It's a quote from 1 Corinthians 9.16. And that is the sad destitution of this poor fallen world. O minister of the gospel, stand for one moment and think of your poor fellow creatures. See them like a stream rushing to eternity, 10,000 to their endless home. Each solemn... And think of your poor fellow creatures. See them like a stream rushing to eternity, 10,000 to their endless homes and each solemn moment fly. See the termination of that stream, that tremendous cataract which dashes streams of souls into the pit. O minister, think that men are being damned each hour by thousands, and that each time your pulse beats, another soul lifts up its eyes in hell, being in torments. Think how men are speeding on their way to destruction. 
I say, is there not a necessity laid upon you? Is it not woe to you if you preach not the gospel? See you not thousands and ten thousands annually ruined? Up from the hospital there comes a voice, woe to you if you preach not the gospel. Enter the dungeons and see the thieves who have for years spent their lives in sin. A voice shall come from each house of correction, from each prison saying, woe to you if you preach not the gospel. Go to the thousand deathbeds and mark how men are perishing in ignorance, not knowing the ways of God. See their terror as they approach their judge, never having known what it was to be saved, and even knowing the way. And as you see them quivering before their maker, hear a voice, minister, woe to you if you preach not the gospel, or step into the hall of the infidel where he blasphemes your maker's name, or sit in the theatre where plays lustful and loose are acted, and from all these haunts of vice there comes the voice, Minister, woe is to you if you preach not the gospel. Put your ear at hell's gate and for a little while listen to the co-mingled screams and shrieks of agony and fell despair that shall rend your ear. And as you come from that sad place with that doleful music still affrighting you, you will hear the voice, Minister, minister, woe is to you if you preach not the gospel. Only let us have these things before our eyes and we must preach. Stop preaching. Stop preaching. Let the sun stop shining and we will preach in darkness. Let the waves stop their ebb and flow and still our voices shall preach the gospel. Let the world stop its revolutions. Let the planets stay their motion. We will still preach the gospel until the fiery centre of this earth shall burst through the thick ribs of her brazen mountains. We shall still preach the gospel till the universal judgment shall dissolve the earth and matter shall be swept away. These lips or the lips from some others called of God shall still thunder forth the voice of the Lord. We cannot help it. Necessity is laid upon us. Yes, woe is to us if we preach not the gospel. Why do I keep on preaching core doctrines here week after week rather than the non-essentials, which are all very interesting? Because the essentials are salvation for many. The essentials tell us that the stakes are too high. Souls are at risk of punishment in hell. Woe to me. If I do not warn them, woe to me if I say to myself, do not prophesy about these things. You may say, but if people are damned and there's no salvation, why not let them live? Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? The essentials don't just tell you about the danger. The essentials also tell you about the salvation. Micah says in verse... Seven, we say, should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he not do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright. It's not just sin and judgment. It's good for those whose ways are upright. Those who respond with repentance and faith can find salvation. And they do. As preachers preach, as preachers drip, and splutter up the front in their feeble efforts, people find salvation. His words do good by the mercy of God. And so he keeps on going. That's the preachers. I know not all of you are preachers. But here's an encouragement to preachers if they're tempted to do what's in their verse 6. When they're tempted to say, do not prophesy, or people say to them, do not prophesy, to keep on going because the stakes are too high. 
But what about the rest of you? What will you do to avoid doing what the Israelites did in verse 6 so many years ago? What will you do to avoid saying to God's preacher, do not preach these things, do not prophesy these things? When someone roasts a godly preacher, will you say, I don't like roast lamb? Or will you add a flame to the fire? It's a joke about people going home from church on Sundays and they always have roast lamb. And it's where they talk about the preacher. Is that you? When someone roasts a godly preacher, is unnecessarily critical of a godly preacher. Do you say, I don't, roast, I don't like roast lamb? Or do you add a flame to the fire? I'm not saying that you can never give negative feedback to a preacher. I'm no prophet. I know I say bad things. As I said, Sunday nights I'm often tortured by all the things I did say, all the things I didn't say, the things that I didn't say very clearly. I know I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying don't give negative feedback. And you are meant to be alert to what the preacher is saying and comparing it to the scriptures like the Bereans did, checking whether these things are so. But if the things are so, are you unnecessarily critical of what he may not have said compared to what he did say? Remember Peter saying, you are the Christ, and then taking that same Christ and rebuking him. Be careful. Are you careful? Secondly, what should you do? Well, find a preacher. Find a preacher who preaches the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And sometimes your pet doctrines along the way, sometimes those non-essentials, which are very interesting and do help us to enjoy the essentials far more clearly because we know the non-essentials. Find a preacher who preaches the old, old story of Jesus and his love and sometimes your pet doctrines. But he's one that you know is preaching what you need to hear. Not necessarily what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Why? Why should you do that? Because it will do you good and it will bring you greater joy than you have ever known. To hear the essentials, to hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love again and again and again will do you good. You think it will do you better to hear some non-essential theological matters that really intrigue you. Yeah, read a book on those through the week. There's lots of books out there that you can read on such subjects. If you don't know about a book on a particular theological non-essential matter, talk to me. I'll be able to give you uh, quite a few titles because I've read a lot of them myself. But when you come to church on Sunday, desire to hear the old, old story. Find a preacher that that preaches the old, old story of Jesus and his love and pray for that preacher. Find one and then pray for him. Pray that that preacher will be used by the Holy Spirit to be God's spokesman, that God will speak through him, that he will prophesy, that he will preach as God's herald, and then treat that preacher as such. Don't pray that he'll be God's spokesman and then sit there and critique him as though he's not God's spokesman. If you pray that he'll be God's spokesman, treat him as such, so that when he speaks something that hits you in your heart, that challenges you about a particular sin, you don't attack other parts of his sermon so that you can minimise that attack that was on your sin. 
Treat him as God's spokesman. Humble yourself before him. Learn to be judged, not judging of the preacher. A consumer of sermons, not always a critic of sermons. And then finally, what can you do? I've said you can be careful about roasting the poor lamb. Find a preacher that preaches the old, old story. Pray for that preacher. Treat him as such. Finally, what can you do? Encourage him. So he loves to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. If he's preaching the gospel faithfully week by week, he's got to be discouraged. He's got to be discouraged. The world is against him. The devil is against him. His own flesh is against him for speaking the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I've had other ministers tell me, Sunday night, they don't sleep well. And I can testify to it too. Encourage him. Don't look out to discourage him as much as you possibly can. Always correcting, always rebuking, always critiquing. You can challenge him if he says something that is clearly wrong. But encourage, encourage him, because so much is against him. And there's a temptation even in his own heart, a little voice in his own heart that says, do not prophesy about these things. Help drown that out just a little by encouraging him. Let's speak to God. Let's come before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a holy God who is wrathful against sin. But we thank you for warning us of your judgment, for telling us of reality and what is to come. We also thank you for telling us of your grace. And we thank you for telling us by your word, but also by preachers. It's so wonderful that you've given men through the ages the gift of your Holy Spirit's understanding, insight into your word, so they can declare what is true about sin, what is true about judgment, but also what is true about grace found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us our sins by our faith in Christ Jesus and help us to never tire of hearing the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We pray these things in his name. Amen.